Let's pray and ask the Lord to help us today, shall we? Father, I thank you and praise you for all of these men who are here this morning. Thank you for your goodness and your grace to each one of us to allow us to rise again on another day. Lord, we praise you that you sustained us all through yesterday and all through last night and that you will continue to sustain us in the number of days you have for us to be here. Lord, we long to be with you. And while we are here, Lord, we want to honor you and please you. Lord, I pray that our time together this morning would be that, that we would honor you, we would please you. We would please you with the things that we say to one another. We would please you with the way we listen. We would please you with the way we interact with one another. Lord God, we are mindful that we are here only by your grace. We are saved by your son at the cross, and we praise you in his name. Amen. All right. So you, uh, we've been talking all year long about how important it is to shepherd your heart and how important it is to shepherd your home and bring the fruit of that into this church and whatever life the Lord gives you in this church and how important it is to allow the kind of man you are to grow in deacon qualifications so that you're ready for formal service in this church whenever the need arises and how important it is to Sharpen yourself consistently with the word and just have a regular practice of sharpening yourself and entering into some of that here. And we've been talking about all of that. And we want to just remind you guys that those things are really important things to keep in front of yourselves. We want to say the same thing this morning that we've always said before, and that is that uh, it all starts with the way we shepherd our hearts. And uh, sometimes you'll find yourself with a busy week or a busy day. You're sitting there, your Bible is open, and your mind is racing, and you're thinking, you know, I've got five things I need to do this morning, and it starts at 8 o'clock, and I need to be in my chair in the office, and I need to be ready to go. And it's really hard to put your attention and your focus on the Word because you've got some very pressing things that are coming that day. It's either a task at work, or it's a conversation with someone in your house, or it's a conversation with somebody at work, or it's something here that's pressing um, and all of those things, a lot of things are on your mind, and you've got your Bible open, and you're thinking, I really need to meet with the Lord. Um, but it's really hard. I'm a little bit distracted by what I've got in front of me today. I've got a big day. And um, I have that experience often. It's very easy for me to think about the things that are beyond me, um, that are coming in the day before I'm thinking about what's right in front of me that morning. So what I want to do is share with you guys some things that, that help me to draw my attention and my focus away from all the stuff that's coming at 8 o'clock or whatever time it is, and draw my attention to what the Lord has for me before then when my Bible is open. So if you have your Bibles, would you just turn with me to Ephesians chapter 1? We're going to look at verses 3 through 6. And what this does is this helps me understand the nature of my relationship with God. And when I understand the nature of my relationship with God, I am ready to take his word in. I am ready to communicate with him in prayer. It's much more meaningful. Paul's writing to a church that he spent more time with probably than any other church in terms of teaching and foundation. He's talking to people who have been well-schooled in the word. They've been trained well. Um, And so he talks to them at great depth, but he brings the most important things to them first. He says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, So when I sit down with my Bible open and I've got all these thoughts about the rest of my day in front of me, it is really important that I remember that I am talking to a triune Godhead. I remember that I am talking to the head of that triune Godhead 
who in addition to being my father, is the father of my God and Savior, my Lord Jesus Christ. So that helps me just frame the, the nature of my interaction with him if I remember who it is that I'm communicating with. And I think about how it is that he's blessed me. He's blessed me with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Uh, he has blessed me with a very positional benefit before him and a very progressive benefit before him. The atoning work at the cross of Jesus was what put me in a right standing before him. And then the resurrection of Christ from the dead is what enabled me to walk in newness of life. So if I have that in front of me, all of the things that are coming at 8 o'clock start to fade away a little bit. And it really helps me remember that. It helps me to remember that I have those benefits in Christ Jesus because God chose me before the foundations of the world. He chose me that I would be holy and I would be blameless before him. It's very helpful for me to remember that that happened outside of the context of what I'm very familiar with, outside of the context of where I'm sitting, what I'm doing today, what I did yesterday. Um, he chose me to be holy and blameless. That was a decision that he made on his part. And that I would be that way before him. That was a declaration that he made about me, even though he knew about everything that I would do. That's very helpful in, in bringing my attention to bear on, on who I am before Christ and what he has for me to remember this morning. When I think about verse 5, I think about a choice that God made outside of the context of where I am, to adopt me to himself. He made a choice to adopt me to himself. And I think about what adoption is, and adoption is the process by which a child who does not normally belong in a family becomes a part of that family. And it's good for me to remember, I do not belong in the family of God uh, because of my sin. My sin disqualifies me from him, and yet because of his choice, he chose to adopt me to himself. Something that I realized recently was that uh, divine adoption is very different than human adoption. In the human adoption process, you have a created being acting as the adopter who's adopting another created being. And so the created being looks at the other created being and says, oh, they're cute, they're wonderful, they're nice, I would love to have them in my family. This is a very pleasant young child to look at, and I would love to have that child in my family. <coughs> But divine adoption is a little bit different from that. You have the one who is separate from the consequences of the fall, adopting one who is subject to the consequence of the fall. And so when he looks at us, he looks at us, and he realizes everything that we are that's offensive to him. And he says, I'm going to make you mine anyway. And you are going to experience all the benefits of the air as you come before me. And so that's very helpful in reminding me of what I'm doing as I'm sitting there with my Bible open. It's very, very helpful. And he did this according to his kind intention, according to his own pleasure, and according to his own joy, he did this. He didn't do this because he looked at me and he saw merit, because he was the creator, and he's looking at a created being who's subject to the fall. And that helps me remember, you really need to be here, you really need to listen to the word of that creator who adopted you. And in verse 6, he did this. It's very important for me to remember the real reason why he did this. He did this for the praise of the glory of his grace. He adopted me, he saved me to himself, he predestined me to adoption, to the praise of the glory of his grace. His greatest desire is that I praise him with who I am. Of course there's benefits in salvation. I, I'm going to where I don't deserve to go when I die. I have the blessing of walking with him in this life. And all of that should point to his grace and the praise of his grace. So that is what I want to do when I sit there. I want to remember, Lord, I'm here to praise you 
for your grace and your kindness to me. So those are some things that are very helpful to me when I am feeling rushed that day. I'm sure I'm not alone in that. Got a lot of things to do this week. You might have a lot of things to do today. Um, if you do, just remember that when you sit down and you spend time alone with the Lord and you're in prayer and you're reading his word, that you are dealing with the creator who adopted you to himself in a very unique way. So that is what we have this morning. So Ephesians 5, verses 15 to 17, we'll read that and then we'll pray and jump into our study on decision making. Paul says to the Ephesians, verse 15 of chapter 5, Therefore, be careful how you walk, how you live, right? Live or walk not as unwise men, but but walk or live as wise men. Making the most of your time for this reason. The days are evil. So the days that you live in are evil days and how you live, you must be very careful. So live wisely. So then don't be foolish. But understand what the will of the Lord is. And then he goes on to tell you what the will of the Lord is. With many, many commands that follow. So let's pray. We'll ask God to help us that we might understand the will of the Lord in our own lives as we make decisions. Father in heaven, what a joy it just was to be in discussion group together and um, to think on 1 Thessalonians 5.14, just, just one Bible verse. And Lord, you caused that truth to intersect our lives and um, provide instruction and even admonishment in our own lives and encouragement and help. We thank you for how um, perfectly clear your word is. We thank you for how it speaks into our very lives. And we do not find ourselves looking at your word thinking, what on earth do we have in common with one another? But we are with new eyes in Christ, looking at your word, realizing that it knows us better than we know ourselves. And we thank you that we can have this word of God, which is sharp and living And it can help us to judge the thoughts and the intentions of our own hearts. Lord, we thank you for your word. Would you please bless our study of your word even now that we might be good decision makers. And we ask this in Christ's name. Amen. If you make the wrong decision in life in evil days, uh, there can be some very long-term unwanted consequences (coughs) in your life. Uh, Making the wrong decision in evil days can bring about some spiritual disaster. And the other is true as well. You make the right decision in evil days and there can be a lot of blessing and protection on you as you make your decision. Um, And making decisions isn't only about you and your own little personal world. Um, The decisions you make and how you go about making decisions actually impacts the those around you that you live with. So if we were to think through the the five disciplines, um, your heart is impacted by the decisions you make and how you go about making decisions. Uh, That will impact the condition of your own heart, but you also impact your household by the way you make decisions. It may be very traumatic for people to be around you while you're making decisions. 
It may be an absolute blessing to be around you as you make decisions. People may flock under your care saying, I want to be under daddy or I want to be under my husband as he makes decisions. I'm safe there. Um, And your ministry to other people as you're in small group and caring for other people, they may be blessed or adversely impacted by your decisions and or by how you make your decisions. And did you know that even as we're getting towards discipline five on interpretation or the hermeneutic, how you make decisions reveals a lot about what you believe about scripture and how you interpret scripture or how you should handle scripture. So all the five disciplines are directly impacted by your decisions and how you go about making them. Uh, So that's why we have this as one of the lessons each year. And it feels like if you were to listen to Christians talk about decision making, it feels like knowing the Lord's will for whatever particular decision lies before us, that that you need to know that. Um, That's the way many Christians cast important decisions that lie before them. Um, A young man says, whom should I marry? I must find the Lord's will for me in marriage. That's the way it's cast. Should we send our daughter to this college or to that university? A husband and wife say. We need to discover the Lord's will for her in regards to secondary education. What is, wait, college isn't secondary. It's what? Third and dairy? It's the next one. After secondary. Um, higher education. Or we've been trying to have a baby for so long. Should we, should we adopt? Should we wait? We need to know the Lord's will. That's the way the decision making is cast. So all of those scenarios and others like them are really important decisions to make in life. And we don't want to make the wrong decision, right? Nobody gets up and says, you know, I really look forward today to making bad decisions. And if we could only know God's will before we had to make the decisions, well, that would solve everything, right? If only we could find God's will. Where is God's will? Um, here's the shocking question that I want to ask for you that might turn some tables over in your mind today. Is it God's will that you find his will before you make a decision? Where's that taught in scripture? Is it his will for you to find his will before you make a decision? If it is his will, then you can be sure and you can be positive that this will make it clear to you on how to do that, right? If it's God's will that you know his will before you make a decision like, whom should I marry? Then you can count on this book right here will be clear on how to do that, right? God wouldn't leave you in the dark on that if it's important from his perspective. God's word will be reliable. God's word will not lead you astray on the important matter if indeed we are to know God's will before we make a decision. Well, what I want you to do today is I want you to think about how you make decisions, how you talk about it, and I want you to hold it in your hand open, with an open hand. And I want you to bring it before the word of God, how you make decisions, how you talk about decision making, and I want you to do with me what we need to do every time, and that is let the Bible speak to how we live And if we need to make some changes, we'll make the changes because we want to live in accordance with God's word, even in how we make decisions. If there are some good things that are going on, well, then we'll let scripture affirm that and we'll praise God for that. 
And if there are some unbiblical things that are going on in our minds as we make decisions, as the scripture reveals that, then we'll, just, we'll let it go. Because we don't want to be unbiblical men. Um, we'll begin this process of evaluating or reevaluating how we make decisions. So um, I'm grateful for my friend Joel James, who's in South Africa, and I'm using a lot of his material. I have permission to steal his material because he thinks much more clearly on this than I do. But um, I'm grateful for his stuff. If you want his stuff, um, you can let me know and I will direct you to the web where you can find that. But let's talk, number one, about God's will in Scripture. We, we should start there. God's will in Scripture comes in two different forms. Um, the first could be called, what we'll look at here, his revealed will. And the second is his unrevealed will. You won't find systematic theologies referring to his will that way. You'll find theologies revealing to his two different wills as his prescriptive will and his decretive will. His prescriptive will is like what he prescribes for us. Those are his commands, uh, his intentions for us. Um, we can know that will. That's a revealed will. His decretive will is what he has determined or decreed will happen in everyday life. Those things you will not always find revealed. Um, those are accurate and useful theological terms, but I think in decision-making it's more helpful to use God's revealed will and his unrevealed will. So let's talk first about his revealed will. Number one, God's revealed will, it is found in his commands. It's found in his broad intentions for believers, and it's found in God's plan for human history. Go to Matthew chapter 7, verse 21. We're going to move quickly on these. Um, you can spend more time on these in your own study uh, in the weeks to come. Matthew 7, verse 21 Jesus said towards the end of his Sermon on the Mount, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who will enter the kingdom of heaven is the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. And then we are so thankful that the rest of the scriptures detail for us what the Father's will is that we must do in order to enter the kingdom of heaven, like repent and believe. Commands laid out for us in God's word um, God has not kept that hidden from us. He has not kept that secret, um, what his will is in regards to salvation. As you read the rest of the scriptures, you find out that one must repent, one must believe, and his will has been revealed, and we praise God for that. Go to First Thessalonians chapter 5. You were there two weeks ago, right? Take a look at First uh, Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 18. There's times when God is very clear about exactly what his will is, and that is his revealed will when he makes it clear. Uh, 5.18, in everything give thanks for this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. So the New Testament provides this and many other clear revelations of God's will for the believer in Jesus Christ so that upon obeying those revelations, upon obeying those commands, we can live a life that is pleasing to the Lord and know that we are in his will. We are living in his will. God does not hide these commands from us. We have everything we need to know concerning his will for us in these commands. Go back to chapter 4, verse 3 of First Thessalonians, and you see the same thing here. This is the will of God for you. What? Your sanctification. That is that you abstain from sexual immorality. Same as what we've been talking about here. God carefully has revealed his will to us, precisely what he wants us to know. 
He's revealed his mind. He's revealed his will to us through these commands. So there's God's commands that reveal his will. The second arrow down, God's broad intentions for believers also reveal his will. This is very similar. Go to Romans chapter 12, verse 2. Romans 12, verse 2. This is similar to how God's commands for believers reveal his will, but these are actually more general. They're more broad in nature. They're principles that are stated in broader ways that may not tell you the specific action in any given situation that you must take, but you must live by this broader intent in his revealed will for you, like Romans 12, verse 2, and do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind so that you may prove what the will of God is, that which is good, acceptable, and perfect. So you will prove what the will of God is as you live a life that is not conformed to this world, but is a transformed life. That may not tell you what movie to watch, but it is a broad intention that you know that you can be in the will of God as you seek to not live a conformed life to the world, uh, conformed to the world life. Um, so God's broader intentions like that reveal his will. And then God's plan for human history reveals his will. Go to Galatians chapter one. There are other ways that God has revealed even broader sweeping plans uh, in his will. Galatians one four. Jesus is the one who gave himself for our sins so that we might, he might rescue us from this present evil age. And he did that according to the will of our God and Father. So it was God's plan for human history that he would rescue certain sinners from their sins and this, in this present evil age. And, and for the next verse, go to Ephesians chapter 1, verse 9. Scott had us in chapter 1 earlier. Just turn a few pages to the right and look at um, Ephesians 1. And in this next verse, God's plan for human history includes not only the past events like his death and his resurrection, but it also includes future events like the return and the reign of Jesus. Ephesians 1 verse 9. He made known to us the mystery of his will. So he made it known. It's revealed. Tell me, Paul. Well, he did it according to his kind intention, which he purposed in him. And he did it with a view to an administration suitable to the fullness of times. That is the summing up of all things in Christ, things in heavens and things on the earth. So what you see is God's future will is revealed to us in that all things one day will indeed be summed up in Christ. Everything will come up under the banner of Christ. Things in the heavens, things on earth. That is his broad plan for human history. So if we could, were to summarize number one, God's commands and his broad intentions for believers and his biblically revealed plan for human history, that all makes up his revealed will, which is knowable. Now, usually when a Christian says that he's trying to discern God's will for his life, he does not mean these things. I'm trying to discern God's will if I should be thankful. Sexually, morally pure. No, that's not usually how we, we talk. Um, he doesn't have these three things in mind at all. Instead, he's wondering about a decision that needs to be made in a specific life situation that scripture does not speak to directly. Should I go to community college or to ASU? Should I buy a house? Should I buy a condo? What is God's will for me in these ways? And that leads us to the second form that God's will comes in. Number two, God's unrevealed will. Um, you can turn back to Proverbs chapter 16. We'll be there in just a moment. 
Proverbs chapter 16. Proverbs acknowledges, indeed, that God has an unrevealed will or plan for every person ever. And and I want you to notice with these Proverbs that we'll look at in a moment that they do not reveal what that will is specifically. It acknowledges there is a will that God does have in every situation, but it does not tell you what it is. It doesn't give any indication in any of these Proverbs here that that unrevealed will can actually be discovered before you make a decision. Proverbs leaves God's unrevealed will, get this, unrevealed. Surprise. It's mysterious. D-Rob, wasn't something I said? I mean... Sorry, he told me already that he was going to leave early, but I just want to make fun of him in front of all of you. (laughs) See you, D-Rob. Have a good week. When you are seeking God's will for the decision that is before you, it's usually this unrevealed, mysterious will that you're after. We'd like to know how God will direct our steps and paths concerning the specifics in marriage or children or purchases or investments. But notice this, he doesn't reveal those things prior to them occurring. Look at Proverbs chapter 16, verse 1. The plans of the heart belong to man, but the answer of the tongue is from the Lord. I know, what is the answer, God? Tell me. And Proverbs 16, verse 1 just says, it is his answer, and you don't have it. How about verse 3? Commit your works to the Lord, and your plans will be established. Yes, God, in what way will they be? He doesn't say. Verse 9. The mind of man plans his way, but the Lord directs his steps. Yes, Lord, tell me which ones. Tell me about steps 7 and 8 down the path. How will you do this? He doesn't say. How about chapter 19, verse 21? Very similar. Many plans are in a man's heart, but the counsel of the Lord will stand. Yes, God, how will it stand in my life? How about chapter 20, verse 24? Man's steps are ordained by the Lord. And watch this. How then can a man understand his way? What is he saying? Look, it's in God's hands. How are you going to understand what God's doing when he doesn't reveal it? I mean, there's your answer. How can you know it? So here's the question that doesn't get asked by us enough. How does the Bible direct me to think about knowing the unrevealed will of God, especially in regards to decision making? How does the Bible direct me? Does the Bible ever tell me? Does the Bible ever teach me? Does the Bible ever guide me? Does it model for me how we can know his unrevealed will in a specific situation before you decide? Are we ever directed by scripture that we can and that we must know God's unrevealed will for a specific situation before we make the decision? Does scripture ever direct us that way? Are we ever directed to find God's unrevealed will before we make a decision? Which passage? You'd think that as popular as I'm finding God's will for my life is among Christians, the way that we talk about it. You think as popular as that is, that that principle must be found everywhere in scripture. That I must find God's will. But here's the honest truth, guys. The practice or the concept is not found in your Bible at all. 
believers in Jesus Christ never are directed by God through his word to find his unrevealed will before they make a decision. I know you, you think right now, if you've never heard that before, you think I'm crazy. Because of how popular it is for believers in Jesus Christ today to believe that they must know the will of God before they make a decision. If you carefully read through scripture's references to God's unrevealed will, you will find the concept of finding that unrevealed will to be absent. Now understand, scripture indeed does assume that God does have a specific plan. He has a specific will for every specific event in every single life. He does have a will. But those same scriptures also assume that his unrevealed will in those daily events in the lives of believers will remain unknowable until it happens. Can I give you some examples? Go to Romans chapter 15, verse 30. Let's watch probably one of the best examples. Let's watch the Apostle Paul deal with the unrevealed will of God. Romans 15, verse 30. To 32, and then we'll look at Romans chapter 1, verses 9 to 10. Now, this has to do with Paul's desire to go to Rome and see the believers there. And this, he writes about that at the very beginning of the book in Romans 1, and he writes about it in chapter 15. Let's look at chapter 15 first. Verse 30 of Rome. That's Acts. No wonder that doesn't make sense. Hang on, let me get in the right book. It'll make more sense. All right, now I urge you, brethren, by our Lord Jesus Christ and by the love of the Spirit, to strive together with me in your prayers to God for me, that I may be rescued from those who are disobedient in Judea, and that my service for Jerusalem may prove acceptable to the saints, so that I may come to you in joy. How will he come to them in joy? By the will of God and find refreshing rest in your company. Now go back to Romans chapter 1. Watch how he says it there. Romans 1 verse 9, for God whom I serve in my spirit in the preaching of the gospel of the son is my witness as to how unceasingly I make mention of you always in my prayers making request if perhaps now at last by the will of God I may succeed in coming to you. So um, here's Paul's desire to go to Rome and see the believers. Paul knew that God had a plan for his own gospel mission, but did Paul write as if he believed he could know God's will for Rome before it happened? He doesn't write that at all. Notice what Paul does not say. He didn't say he was trying to find God's will about going to Rome. If Paul makes it to Rome, he will know what? It was God's will that I made it to Rome. He is making his plans, Proverbs 69, but the Lord directs his steps. And who would have ever thunk that he made it to Rome as a prisoner via shipwreck. That was God's will. And you know what? You and I should be glad God doesn't tell us ahead of time how things are going to (laughs) go. How about Acts chapter 18? Let's watch Paul again. Acts 18 verse 20. This is Paul and whether or not the Jews in Ephesus and he would ever see um, each other again. He's at the end of his second missionary journey. Acts 18, verse 20. 
And when they, the Jews in Ephesus, asked him to stay for a longer time, he did not consent, but taking leave of them and saying, I will return to you again if God wills, he set sail from Ephesus. Go over to uh, and watch Paul do this again in 1 Corinthians chapter 4. Uh, Paul did this as well, this kind of thinking in regards to the Corinthians. He had been there once and he wanted to get back and see them. So 1 Corinthians 4 verse 18. Now, some have become arrogant as though I were not coming to you. But I will come to you soon if the Lord wills. And I'll find out, not the words of those who are arrogant, but I'll find out their power. Paul considered these desires and these future intentions to be unknowable. Interestingly, Paul actually did make it back to Ephesus on the third missionary journey. And Paul actually did make it back to Corinth on his way to Rome. But he never spoke of those decisions in terms of he's trying to find God's will. In those matters, there's no indication from the Apostle Paul that it is God's will that you know God's unrevealed will for your life before it happens. Probably the best passage to look at James chapter four. Turn to James chapter four, verse 13. James four, verse 13 to 15. Come now, you who say today or tomorrow, we will go to such and such a city and we'll spend a year there, we'll engage in business, and we will make a profit. Come now, you who think that way, come. Instead, you don't know what your life will be like tomorrow. You're a vapor that appears for a little while and then vanishes away. Here's how you ought to think instead. If the Lord wills, we'll live. We'll just breathe tomorrow. If the Lord wills, and also do this or that. But now look at the commentary he gives on that kind of thinking. As it is, when you think like you were thinking in verse 13, you boast in your arrogance and all such boasting is evil. Therefore, to the one who knows the right thing to do and does not do it, to him it is sin. Contextually, what does that mean? If you know the right thing to do is to say, you know what, I'll do, I'll do that tomorrow if the Lord wills. That's the right thing to do. To know that's the right thing to do but not do it is sin. <laughs> James and the rest of scripture don't even come close to speaking about future decisions like we hear most Christians talking about them. Let's finish with one last one. Deuteronomy 29, verse 29. Turn there. Guys, God's will, his unrevealed will, is hidden, but it's not lost. You don't have to find it. Deuteronomy 29, verse 29. In these closing chapters of Deuteronomy, God revealed to the Jews his will and his plan for the broad scope of Israel's history. He revealed to them in these final chapters things like if Israel obeys his law, they'll flourish in their new land. That will be his will for them if they obey. If they disobey his law, then they would languish and be expelled from their land. In fact, in Deuteronomy 30, a national disgrace and exile wasn't just a potential development for Israel, but it's actually going to happen to them, he says in Deuteronomy 30. So God had revealed his will or plan for the future of Israel. And the curious Israelite was sure to ask, how? How and when? What is it going to be? However, God wasn't giving out details. In fact, God 
had Moses tell his people not to attempt to discover the detail of those future events. Instead, they were to focus on what he had commanded them to do in his law. So in the context of future events and God revealing some of that, of what's going to be, but not the specifics of it, look what he says. Deuteronomy 29, 29. The secret things belong to the Lord our God, but the things revealed belong to us and to our sons forever that we may observe all the words of the law. What is the revealed will of God? It is his law for Israel. And it was revealed to them so that they would just be an obedient people, even though they don't know how God is going to map out every single step. So there's so much of his unrevealed, the secret things that they don't even know about, but God's intent for them is just know what I revealed to you and do it. Keep my revealed will as you do not know what my unrevealed will is. When Christians today try to find God's will before making a decision, what are they looking for? They're looking for the secret things that belong to God. Those are the things that God says belong to him. We speak as if God's will for future events in our daily lives is lost. I have to find it. No, it's not, it's not lost. He's just not telling you. And he doesn't, he doesn't uh, command us to go look for it. Conclusion. How do we summarize this? Guys, do you want to go about making decisions the right way, a biblical way in your life? Then don't go looking for that which God says you can't know before it happens. Don't go looking for it. Nowhere in Scripture do we find any instruction or good example of how to find God's unrevealed for a future event or a situation before we make the decision. You say, ha ha, I've read Gideon. Judges 6. Remember? God, how am I going to know if we're going to make it? Here, I, God, I got this idea. I'll take this fleece and I'll put it out on the ground. If you'll do this on one side but not on the other, I'll believe you. So God did it. And then Gideon said, thank you. That was exactly what I needed. <laughs> I will trust you now. No, what did he say? I'm going to do it one more time, but now do it the opposite. And then, I'll, no. no. Um, by the way, is that meant by God in Judges to be an, a good example for all of us? What is the theme of the book of Judges? Every man did what was right in his own sight, including Gideon in his decision making. <laughs> When he wanted to know what was going to happen in the future event. Now, was God kind to him? God condescended to him in ways that oftentimes he doesn't to anybody. But the Apostle Paul and James both believed God's plan for tomorrow was unknowable. So obviously God's word supplies then no special technique for discovering God's unrevealed will in advance. So if scripture is absolutely silent on trying to find God's unrevealed will before you make a decision, then where do Christians get the idea to do that? Not from the Bible, but from themselves. Do you think Gideon, what Gideon did was a sin? I think what Gideon did was a tremendous example of lack of faith. And I think what God did with Gideon was he's working with what he's got to work with in Israel. Who in Israel at the time? I mean, this is like, this is like when God picks Abraham. God looks over the whole mass of humanity, not long after the flood, 
Who does he have to work with that's qualified? Nobody. He's got to pick an idolater. Which idolater am I going to pick? Abraham. In Israel, everyone is doing what is right in their own eyes. Who's he going to pick? Gideon. Gideon makes a foolish request. And God was just kind. Gave him what he didn't deserve. Um, So, the whole idea of trying to discover God's unrevealed will for future specific daily events is actually, guys, it's unbiblical thinking. It's actually man-centered thinking. It's thinking that came from man, not from God's word. Let me say it another way. If you think that you must know God's unrevealed will first before you make a decision, that is only going to lead you to a method that is not found in Scripture because Scripture doesn't teach it. Does that make sense? So I want to give you some examples of some man-made techniques. Okay, number two, big number two here. Man-centered attempts to find God's will. And guys, every single one of us has done or may be in the midst of doing every single one of these, including me. Okay, number one, the purely pragmatic approach. And the key word is purely, meaning only the pragmatic approach. There's no other influence allowed to impact the decision-making process except this pragmatic approach. This is the rational approach. This is the list of pros and then cons. And by the way, that's a good part of decision-making to do. But it's a list of pros and then cons are made. And the pragmatist then weighs all of the options before making the decision. Nothing wrong with that in and of itself. But the one factor that he uh, can give little or no consideration to actually, the one who's purely pragmatical, is that he's just not giving any consideration to God. Because he is purely pragmatic. The pragmatist may be a Christian. He will tell you that the Bible is important to him, but he makes decisions like a practical atheist. Because all he does is he makes his table, his little column of pros and cons, and weighs everything out that way. He considers buying a car. He'll research interest rates, prices, styles, etc. However, it never crosses his mind to research, research what the Bible actually says about debt. Do you understand? It's a purely pragmatic approach. Uh, when a husband and wife are considering whether or not the wife and or the mother should re-enter into the workforce, a purely pragmatist approach, pragmatic approach, will make a list of pluses and minuses, and they'll weigh the income and the career aspirations against time with the kids, and they'll make a decision purely pragmatically. They function in that decision, making as a practical atheist, and they, they do not give... Um, what scripture says about ordering the family a a platform to speak into their lives. And it's not that anybody intentionally is against the Bible in this. We just think, well, how can you argue against the facts that I put down on paper in two columns? Or perhaps they're afraid that the Bible might actually lead to a more difficult decision-making process and eliminate the decision they want. Here's what I found. I'll give you on each one of these a, a what I've found as a as an elder, and Scott could confirm this as well. Try to question the purely pragmatical one. Try to question the two columns, the, the pluses and the minuses, the pros and the cons. And oftentimes the response is, how can you argue with this research? I mean, I, I've sorted through these facts. I've got them all right here. The data is right here, you see? So this can become a method of discerning God's unrevealed will that is actually centered within them and you're not in them to assess the details. And so the decision is actually not centered in scripture, but it's outside 
of that and in them. And when you try to question that in the deep recesses of them, the person becomes very skeptical of your critique and easily brushes you off. It's a very convenient method for making a decision when you want the criticism phase over. How do you argue with the facts? I mean, look what this, look what this is going to do for my business. What are you telling me? Um, well, maybe there are some other things to think about in regards to the impact on your family. But look at the facts. It's a method that allows you to dodge legitimate criticism, so you have to be careful of that when it happens that way. Number two, there's the lucky dip approach to scripture. Watch out for this one. The person dips into his Bible randomly until he finds a verse or phrase which spurs him to make one choice over another. For example, should I move out of state? That's what's on my mind. I have to consider this job. And, and I, guys, I, I heard this in the last year in this church. Okay. Should I move out of state away from mom, dad, away from everybody and branch out, do business back east. And the next morning you read Genesis 12, one, and you know what it says? It says, go forth from your land. <laughs> this is it. That's it. God's will for my life. I found it. And you use the Bible to make your decision. How great. But guys, that marks a use of the Bible. See, this is where I say that it actually reveals your interpretational method. 2 Timothy 2.15 says, Present yourself to God as a workman who does not need to be ashamed, handling accurately the word of truth. Listen, would the God who demands an accurate handling of his word, would he give his approval of such an interpretation and application of a text which suddenly turned Abram into you? No, he wouldn't. But God led me to that verse. Are you sure? God's you in the text was Abram, not you. That would actually be a twisting of God's word and it would actually be a secret interpretation of that passage that no one else would ever consider coming to that passage. Nobody else around that guy would have read that and said, no, I think that actually is my friend who's considering moving back east and starting business there. So what I have found in this is you try to question the decision made from lucky dipping and many times the response is just... How could you doubt how I came across that? I mean, that's not, a, that's not a coincidence. That was God. What are the chances of me coming across that verse right at this crucial time? And even though scripture is used this time in this method, it's still a decision that is centered within the believer because that interpretation of the passage is centered there in that believer and it's actually not in the page of the text. And so if the interpretation was secretly revealed within the believer, then it becomes much more difficult for anybody outside that believer to challenge it. How can you be there inside them and offer criticism? And you can easily in that brush another's criticism of you off because you're of your own internal mystical feelings about how that verse just connected with you. And it's just simply not understood by others. And listen, guys, here's the real danger. Once you start ignoring the context of God's statements and arbitrarily snip out the only words that you want to hear, then you really can make the Bible say anything you want it to to support your decision-making process. So it's a method that allows you to end the criticism phase of your decision-making, and you need to be really careful of that. How about number three, the prophecy approach? 
There's an extreme form of this, and there is a more popular form of it. Most of us don't live around the extreme form. The extreme form is that some Christians actually will make their decisions by consulting somebody in the church that they believe is a modern-day prophet. We, we don't live that way here at Grace Bible Church, but we are far more inside the popular vein of this, which is the kind of thinking that just says, well, God told me to. God said, you know, God, in, in that situation, God was just saying to me, go talk to them. So let's think about, you know what that is, guys? Here's what that honestly is. That is a claim to direct verbal revelation from God for a specific situation. That's what that is. And so we need to let, who gets to define what prophecy is? Do you? Do I? God's word gets to define what it is, right? If you need to go back and listen to a sermon we did in, from Acts on um, this, you can on prophecy. Uh, it's November 2nd of 2014. You can go back and listen to that if you want. But when a prophet, let's go back to Deuteronomy 18, verse 18. Look, look there. We're going to let God's word just kind of tell us what to think about in regards to prophecy. Um, when a prophet spoke in the name of God, you could be sure that what he said was God's word and God's will. Because God defined prophecy that way. Chapter 18, verse 18. I will raise up a prophet from among their countrymen like you, Moses, and I will put my words in his mouth and he shall speak to them all that I command him. There is a place for this legitimate prophet in the history of redemption. The prophet that was raised up by God speaks only God's word because God said he would. He wasn't wrong when he prophesied. Look at verse 21. Uh, you may say in your heart, how will we know the word which the Lord has not spoken? Well, when a prophet speaks in the name of the Lord, if the thing does not come about or come true, that is the thing which the Lord has not spoken. The prophet has spoken presumptuously. You shall not be afraid of him. So notice what God says about a prophet who claimed to receive revelation from God, but occasionally missed it. That one was a fraud. That one was a liar. And that one was to not be feared by God's people. So did you know that so-called modern day prophets actually claim to not be completely accurate? Uh, you can read in, in Wayne Grudem's systematic theology, he believes that prophecy still exists. And, but he claims that well, but, but it's not always right. Well, who gets to define what that is? Not a systematic theology, but the Bible and if a guy says he's getting direct revelation and it's not true, uh, don't be afraid of that one. And we're going to see some more things that it says about that. How does that compute with what God's definition of a prophet is? Um, go to Acts chapter 27. Remember when uh, Paul was sailing from Jerusalem to Rome and they decided it was probably a bad idea. Paul decided it was a bad idea to sail but uh, the, the the Roman centurion over him and the pilot, uh, the, the pilot, not the pilot, what do they call it? The captain decided, no, we're going we're gonna to sail on. And Paul said, this is a bad idea, right? Remember this? Acts 27, verse 25. Um, Therefore, keep up your courage, men. This is in the midst of it. I believe that God, uh, I believe God that it will turn out exactly as I have been told. Remember, he was told every single soul has been granted to you. And Paul tells him, I believe it will turn out 
No, why, why could he say that? Because as a prophet himself and apostle, Paul spoke with certainty in his situation, something that you or I or nor any so-called modern day prophet could ever do in our situations today. Why? Paul was a true prophet and his prophecies never went wrong because he was a prophet as God defines prophecy and prophets. We, if we claim to be hearing from God in other situations, we are prophets by how we define prophecy, and we need to be really careful. Our definition doesn't match God's definition. And here's how God views that kind of redefined, fraudulent prophecy. Go to Jeremiah chapter 5. Jeremiah 5, verse 30. An appalling and a horrible thing has happened in the land. The prophets prophesy falsely and the priests rule on their own authority and my people love it so. But what will you do at the end of it? How does God feel about that? It's appalling and it's horrible. But boy, do the people love to hear somebody say, thus saith the Lord. And he's saying, what are you going to find at the end of that? And it's not like you're not going to find goodies at the end of that. Proverbs 23, verse, I'm sorry, Jeremiah 23, verse 16. Jeremiah 23, verse 16. Thus says the Lord of hosts, do not listen to the words of the prophets who are prophesying to you. They are leading you into futility. They speak a vision of their own imagination, not from the mouth of the Lord. That is what anybody who is doing today, who claims to be hearing from God, they are speaking a vision of their own imagination. God actually says to not listen to a person who claims to have heard from God, but who isn't a prophet according to the definition. I'll take you back to Deuteronomy one more time. Go back to Deuteronomy. Turn there with me. Chapter 13, verse 1. Watch this. Very sobering. God gets to define what a prophet is. God gets to define how a prophet, uh, how accurate a prophet is. God gets to define what the consequences are. For false prophecy, if a prophet, Deuteronomy 13, verse 1, if a prophet or a dreamer dreams uh, or a dreamer of dreams arises among you and gives you a sign or a wonder and the sign or the wonder comes true concerning which he spoke, saying, let us go after other gods whom you have not known and let us serve them. So understand this. A guy comes on the scene and he says, I'm a prophet and I'm telling you, let's go after the other gods. And here's a sign. Boom. And that sign happens. What should they do? Verse 3. You shall not listen to the words of that prophet or of that dreamer of dreams. Why? Because the Lord your God is actually testing you to find out if you love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul. You shall follow the Lord your God and fear him and you shall keep his commandments. Listen to his voice. Serve him, cling to him. But that prophet or that dreamer of dreams shall be put to death because he has counseled rebellion against the Lord your God who brought you from the land of Egypt and redeemed you from the house of slavery to seduce you away from um, the way in which the Lord your God commanded you to walk. So you shall purge the evil from among you. So understand this. God revealed his commandments and said, no idols, only me. And then a guy comes on the scene after that and says, I'm a prophet. Let's go follow idols. 
and then poof, there's some kind of sign that comes true. What should God's people do with that? You ignore that guy. Why? Because of what's in front of him or before him. There's revealed the revealed will of God in his word that he already told us. And it doesn't matter if somebody comes on the scene and does miracles. You don't listen to that guy. You listen to the word of God. In fact, what should we do with that guy, Israel? Let's kill him. Because he's trying to seduce us away from God. Now, look, we don't rub uh, shoulders with those kinds of so-called prophets who claim to be present in the church to be able to tell people specifically what they should go do. We just don't, we don't live in that. Do you know that most Christians in the world do? There is somebody in the village. There's somebody in the church. There's somebody in the town who tells fortunes, who claims to be a believer. But what I do come across within GBC frequently is that God was talking to people, telling them what to do. God said to me, You know what this is like? This is like the lucky dip approach. This method of making decisions, it gives the appearance of putting God at the center of the decision-making process. But actually, the one who is at the center of that decision-making process is still self. The decision is centered within the believer and his subjective experience. And that becomes nearly impossible to question in the believer. And isn't that convenient if you re- if what you want really, really badly, you just don't want to be questioned on anymore. God told me. Do you know what that is? That's the trump card. At some point, if you just kind of want to end the criticism phase, what, what can you say? God told me. And when God speaks, we do what he says, right? I mean, in his word, we obey us what he told me. Criticism phase over in my decision-making process. They really like the idea of God, but understand this. They really like the idea of God speaking directly into their situation. I think that's what most people are doing when they say God told me. They, they want, they truly genuinely want God at the center. And that's the way they're choosing to have God be center, central in their decision-making process. But those people do not want what they heard God say to them as prophecy, as the Bible defines prophecy. That's why there's a movement among charismatics and even reformed charismatics today to redefine prophecy so that you don't actually kill the prophet who's wrong. And and so what they're doing is they've redefined a new kind of prophecy. God speaks to people and sometimes it's wrong. What? But the Bible won't let you have it both ways, guys. If a believer wants it only the one way and not the other, meaning you want God to speak directly into your situation, but you don't want the consequences. You don't want to be bound to the consequences if you're wrong. You just can't have it that way because why? Scripture doesn't let you have it that way, right? There's only one thing to call that kind of decision-making, guys. It's unbiblical. Even though you're claiming God spoke to you. Number four, the peaceful approach. We are all guilty of this. This is a very common approach. I just had a peace about that. Man, I just had a peace about that. So that's why I did that. Or, you know what? We didn't do You know why we didn't do it? Because we just didn't have a peace about it. Now, what this method assumes is that God communicates his unrevealed will through a sense of inner calm. Here's how you find God's unrevealed will. You'll feel calm inside about that. Where is that taught in Scripture? 
I mean, it's like, what? how long have I believed this kind of decision-making? The problem, of course, is that inner peace may actually have nothing to do with a decision being a good decision or a bad decision. There have been believers who are at peace about committing adultery and ruining their marriages. Does that mean that's God's will for them? Having peace about a decision might actually say nothing about whether it's a good decision or a bad one or a godly one or an ungodly one. In fact, as popular as the peaceful approach is among Christians, the Bible never speaks of peace as a ground or a prerequisite for decision making. Let me ask you this. Remember Jesus in the garden as he was praying? Was he at peace? Son of God. There's a way, there's any way that this does not have to happen. Can we do it? And the Holy Son of God, and I'm going to have sin on me, and you are going to judge me. Is there, can we find another way? And he sweat drops of blood. This is not a peaceful man. But was what in front of him was going to happen? Was that the will of God? And you know what I'm thankful for? I'm thankful he did not look for an inner peace and calm before he did it. He just did it because it was the will of God. So what I have found is that this too is a decision-making process that is centered in man and not in God, even though it claims God gave the peace. How can the giving of peace be doubted by anybody outside? I mean, it's a peace about this. And actually becomes a very convenient method when you want the criticism phase over in your decision making. God gave me a piece about it, subject closed. I'm not going to talk about it anymore. Beware of that, guys. Now, do you feel peace about decisions sometimes? Absolutely. Are you supposed to use that as a ground, a prerequisite before you make a decision? You know, I can tell you this. When I have a very difficult meeting that I know I need to go to, that I need to, it's, it's admonishing an unruly brother. Do you know how unpeaceful I feel before I do it? Do you know how much time I, I spend in the bathroom before because I'm sick? Because I don't want to do it. Guys, don't make decisions based on how you feel. Yeah. You're distinguishing them between a peace and a resolve. So the example you just said, you have a resolve, you know it's true, you don't you don't want to do it, but you have a resolve that it's the right thing to do. Yeah, you you may be you may have uh, maybe we should talk about two different pieces. Okay. Yeah, that, that's a piece. You would be very. I'm a, look. I can read what it says. I need to go talk to my brother in private, and I've got a piece about what that says, but I don't have a sense of inner calm about. The process. So, yeah, you have a resolve to do what's right. And which one is the revealed will of God and how it's going to turn out? I don't know. Yeah, absolutely. How about number five? The opened or closed door approach. If you've ever used this method, you've probably been heard saying something like, God opened all the doors for me to get this new job. He just opened the doors. It must be his will. And what you mean is, Something like, if circumstances make it easy for me to do something, then the decision to do that thing must be the right decision. Now, we're talking about um, before the decision is made, using an open door thinking before you make the decision. 
Well, where is this taught in Scripture? That interpreting circumstances through open doors, where is that taught? What is that um, actually determining? How do you determine if a door is actually open? It's your state of mind rather than thinking biblically about the matter. For instance, um, this is the example that uh, Joel uses, my friend who has been a pastor in South Africa. He's talked to many missionaries there. Missions work in Africa is very difficult, and he's heard many American missionaries saying, we're just having so much trouble raising our support. I think that God is closing the door on us going or staying. See, it's a closed door because I've interpreted the circumstances as a closed door. Well, what if God just wants you to persevere? Well, then he would open the door. No, maybe not. What if Paul, on his missionary journeys, made decisions about each next phase of gospel mission on the basis of whether or not an open door or a closed door before him was there? In Philippi, he was beaten and he was put into prison in stocks. In Thessalonica, the next place he went to, there were riots. And then those riots followed him to Berea on his second missionary journey. And then he got to Athens and he was mocked. All those open doors? Would you call those open doors for ministry? So guys, it's completely arbitrary to decide that something is not God's will on the basis of how difficult it appears to do it or not. The fact that something is easy to do doesn't mean it's good or wise. Guys, let me ask you this. Was the door open for David to commit adultery with Bathsheba? Yeah, the door is wide open. Was that God's will? Of course not, right? What about the Midianite caravan that just happened to be coming along just at the right moment in Joseph's case? Was, Was the door open for Joseph to be sold into slavery? Is that God's will? Ultimately, his unrevealed will, yes. But his prescribed will, you don't sell your brother. Okay? So, what have I found pastorally? Again, this is a decision-making process that is centered within the decider and not centered on the word. It's centered within you. It becomes almost impossible for someone outside of you to question it. It it can just become a very convenient way to end the criticism phase of your decision-making process. God, just open the door. I mean, now look, Paul even uses this language that God has opened an an effective door for ministry for me. Guys, there is a sense in which you can use this language legitimately. The illegitimate use of it is I won't do something until I discern that the door is open or closed. That's not taught in scripture. When you look back on your life, did God open the door for me to come to this church 12 and a half years ago? That was the only way I got here. But to be thinking that I won't make a decision about coming here until I can tell God has opened the doors and I won't move until then, that's just not taught in scripture. God will open doors, guys. The mind of the man plans his way, but the Lord directs his steps and he opens doors wherever he needs to but you are not commanded to know that before you make your decision do you understand one last um unbiblical method sign seeking the method i know we all laugh like oh i did that too um the method for finding god's unrevealed this one uh, looks 
for special events or coincidences before making the decision, believing that God somehow is secretly but clearly communicating through that event what decision should be made in the moment. Guys, where's that taught in Scripture? It's completely arbitrary. And we all interpret these signs in different ways. Um, and we, want to, we interpret them a lot of times in the direction of the way that we want to go. And there's no way of knowing or determining objectively if an event really was a sign from God or not. It's all arbitrary. And the method cannot be found encouraged anywhere in Scripture. Actually, do you know what Scripture does say about somebody who craves a sign? Remember anything about that? Can I read you just one verse? How about Matthew 12? Yeah. How about this? Matthew 12, verse 38 and 39. Some of the scribes and the Pharisees said to him, Teacher, we want to see a sign from you. But he answered and said to them, An evil and adulterous generation craves for a sign. So do you want to look for signs? I don't think you want to. No sign will be given except the sign of Jonah the prophet. And that was about as clear to them as mud. What do you what is that? What's the sign of Jonah? So again, what I have found is, have you ever tried to question the interpretation of the so-called sign? How'd that go for you? It's very internally driven. It's difficult to discern. And it's also just a convenient way when you just want the criticism phase over in your decision-making process. It silences the critics. It can make the one who had the sign sound very spiritual and the one who's questioning whether or not it's a legitimate sign sounding very unspiritual. So let's make some observations and conclusions about these six unbiblical methods. Not one of these methods, guys, is taught in Scripture. It's not explained. It's not modeled positively. It's not sanctioned by your Bible for discovering God's unrevealed will. Why? Because God does not desire us to find his unrevealed will before we make a decision. And so that makes every one of these methods an unbiblical one for decision making. Every single one of these methods is actually centered more inside the believer than it in, its own, in the believer's arbitrary feelings or internal interpretations of events. And that means every single one of these methods cannot be objectively measured by truth. Well, they can, but it just won't go well. And every one of these methods for discerning God's unrevealed will at some point become the trump card. Look, this just the criticism phase is just over. God told me. You can't argue how I came across that verse. Um, the sign was there. The door was open. The inner peace was there. We're done talking about this. And that's something to be really afraid of. How should we think about all this? First, how about this? Let's just extract decision-making from the whole idea of trying to find God's will. Just take trying to find God's will, just take that and just put it off to the side. Why? Because God's word does not encourage you to look for it. Now, let's just talk about biblical decision-making. And let me give you number three here, some decision-making informed by scripture. I'll give you six steps you can go through as you make decisions. Number one, in God's strength, be obedient to God's revealed will. Okay? Be obedient to his commands. Be obedient to his broad intentions in scripture. What am I saying here? Generally speaking, just be an obedient to God decision maker. Okay? 
the first place to begin is to make sure that where God has revealed his will, that we are indeed walking obediently to that revealed will. Remember, God's revealed will is seen in both his commandments and in his broad intentions for his people. So making careful decisions about something that is unrevealed by God, while then being at the same time really sloppy about his commandments, actually seems to be upside down, backwards, and wrong. To be so ultra-sensitive to the need to make a wise decision about something that is unrevealed by God while being insensitive to his revealed commands actually tells you that there's a bigger problem that needs to be addressed in your heart. Do you understand that? So therefore, just in God's strength, be obedient to God's revealed will for your life. As you do, guess what? You're going to find the other decision-making process. It'll go much better for you. Number two. So be obedient to his revealed will. Number two, pray for wisdom. Difficult decisions begin with prayer. If you go back to Proverbs, Proverbs 16, verse 3. Look at a couple of these. Proverbs 16, verse 3. Commit your works to the Lord and your plans will be established. As you prayerfully commit your works to the Lord, he will establish your plans. It doesn't say how it will be established. Probably not in the way that you think. Oftentimes he directs your steps down a different path than what you plan. Verse 9 of Proverbs 16. But that all begins with humbly committing your decision-making process to God. If you go back to Proverbs 3, verses 5 and 6. Uh, trust in the Lord with all your heart and do not lean on your own understanding. In all of your ways, in all of your paths, acknowledge him. There's the way to be prayerful. Acknowledge him on the path as you are taking one step after another. Acknowledge him. Acknowledge his nearness, his, his interest, and then he will make your path straight. That doesn't mean you'll know exactly what it's going to be, but just pray for wisdom. Remember what you are not praying for. You are not praying, God, show me the open door and then I'll do what you want. God, give to me a peace about how I feel about that. You're not praying for a word from the Lord or any of that. You're praying for wisdom. That means that, guys, you need to have a daily intake of God's wisdom in Scripture in your life. And the book of Proverbs needs to be a regular part of your reading the Bible every year. Because that wisdom needs to soak in and seep into all of the cracks and crevices of your mind and your heart. It, it takes time to learn how to think wisely like Proverbs thinks. Lucky dipping in scripture doesn't take much time. All you got to do, did you ever do this with your life? That doesn't work. Um, that doesn't work. How long does that take? Not very long. Right. But to actually be pouring over Proverbs. And I think this is what maybe gets to the heart of some of the unbiblical methods of making decisions. We're looking for the fast decision to get us what we want rather than slow the thing down. Let's let scripture speak to this. Let's let others speak into this. Let's just slow the process down. I, I, I can tell you guys when I get an idea in my head of what I think we should do for my family. Man, I am decided now. And I'm pretty sure at that moment, there's nothing else to consider. Until I say it to my wife and she just says one thing and I'm like, eh. <laughs> yeah, that's pretty wise. Maybe we should circle back around on that, right? <laughs> so 
maybe that's a part of the reason that we turn to such methods in decision making. We just don't want to slow the decision making process down to find out what the wisdom from God is that would apply. Number three, gather information and counsel. Guys, gather information. Make your list of pros and cons. Make your tables. Very important. Just don't only do that, right? Proverbs loves careful, thought-out, informed decision-making. Look at Proverbs chapter 14, verse 15. Proverbs 14, verse 15. The naive believes everything. But the sensible man considers his steps. You need to consider your steps. How about Proverbs 21 verse 5? The plans of the diligent lead surely to advantage, but everyone who is hasty surely comes to poverty. See, that's the problem. We're being hasty in our decision-making process and it it ruins us. But be diligent in your decision-making Knowing all that you can know about a decision is helpful as you weigh your decision. And again, one of the problems for believers is that we're just in too much of a hurry. Um, One of the ways to get the knowledge or information that you need is by getting it through the counsel of others. Look back at Proverbs 15, verse 22. Proverbs 15, verse 22. Without consultation, plans are frustrated, but with many counselors, those plans succeed. How about Proverbs chapter 12, verse 15? The way of a fool is right in his own eyes, but a wise man is he who listens to counsel. The reason that we need counsel, guys, is that we are not omniscient. We don't know everything. We have limited information, limited experience, along with our own blind spots. And so having a dependable believer provide counsel to us from the outside of us is beneficial. They help us to remember biblical truth that we have forgotten that will help shape our decision-making process the way that it needs to. They can sometimes see the, the situation more accurately. It's more objective to them than it is for us. And we're all wired a little differently. Some of us have an inclination to see only the rosy side of every decision we're going to make. How could there be anything wrong with this? And we've been that way on every decision since we were a kid. And others of us, we're so pessimistic. Every decision is a disaster. And you need people around you who, you, who, around you who aren't like you, who are different, who will see it differently. It's important to make sure, though, that the counselors that you go to are the right kind of counselors who also only want to make good biblical decisions. For somebody to say, you know what, can I pray about that before we talk? Before I tell you, I'd like to pray about that. I want to, I want to think about God's word on that. And you're like, um, yeah, but I've got to make the decision in an hour. Well, see, that's the problem. We're in a rush. We're in a hurry. And we need to slow down. Um. But for somebody to say, you know what, let me see if I hear from the Lord on that. You don't want that counsel. It might be good, but you just don't want that kind of thinking. Um, write down Proverbs eleven fourteen, Proverbs eleven fourteen, Proverbs thirteen ten, Proverbs twenty eighteen, and Proverbs twenty seven nine. Eleven fourteen, thirteen ten. 2018 and 27.9. So, so far in the decision-making process, we've talked about being obedient to God's commands for us, pray for wisdom, and seek counsel from others. Number four, does the Bible speak directly to my decision? Now you ask yourself, does the Bible, and by the way, these are not sequential, like you can't do number four first, okay? But they're just in order, the way they are. 
Does the Bible speak directly to my decision? So before you make a decision, you should determine if God's revealed will, his commands and his broad uh, intentions for believers has spoken to it or not. Um, Make sure that it either affirms or denies the decision before you make the decision. How much better it is for you to spend time in your decision-making process making sure that Scripture doesn't condemn the decision you're going to make or that Scripture actually doesn't need to affirm your decision you're going to make. Um, my friend Joel gives a few examples here. A young, and, and by the way, these are things that you, you deal with in the church. A young believing man might um, debate whether he should marry a girl who is, and he's made his list of pros and cons. She is kind. She is exciting. She is attractive. She is intelligent. Conside. She's not a Christian. <laughs> but I, I weigh that out. I just <laughs> you guys laugh. I wish it wasn't true. But he hasn't thought what 1 Corinthians 7.39 says, that it lays down the divine principle in regard to marriage, that a Christian is to marry only in the Lord, meaning another Christian. And so that young man, if he's ignoring that scripture speaks directly to a situation, he may be off seeking for signs. He may be looking for open doors. He may have a peace about it. He's made his list of pros and cons, and it outweighs the con in his mind. He's lucky dipped his scripture, and he took a passage from Jacob and finding a wife or whatever, who knows. God told me. But all of that would only be a waste of time. Why? Because one phrase in scripture speaks directly to it and nullifies everything else. Another example. God doesn't say in the Bible that you should work for business X or for business Y. However, if one boss expects you to cook the books in such a way that you cheat on his taxes, well, you know God's will for that situation, don't you? God revealed it. Not in the moment, not through a sign, but through a command. It's clear. Romans 13, 6 says, pay your taxes. Jesus said, render unto Caesar what is Caesar's. And you know you can't accept that or stay at a job which demands you to disobey God or to help someone else disobey God. Here's another example. A man might debate over which job to take. But there really is no debate whether or not a man needs to look for a job or not. Ah, I'm trying to decide if the Lord wants me to work or not. <laughs> How about Second Thessalonians three ten to twelve? If you don't work, don't eat. Right. Another example: If God has spoken directly to an issue in His Word, then there is no decision essentially. Right. Just do what God said. God has made some decisions easier than others. They're directly addressed in His revealed will in the Scriptures, and in that case, you can find God's will because He revealed it right there. Right. It's written down in black and white. It just takes a little work to study it. Number five, how does the Bible speak indirectly to my decision? This is the one that's really important. Decision-making becomes easy when the Bible says something like, don't steal. Okay, got that one. Decision's made for me. That's a divine directive on whether or not to continue at a job where you're asked to cheat your customers out. But not every situation is like that. The Bible may not directly address your specific situation. Should I make this difficult phone call right now? Should I, should I fire this employee now or later today? But that doesn't mean God's word in that case can't still be a lamp unto your feet and guide you. Whatever decision, guys, you face, it's certain that God has at least indirectly addressed it in his word. 
And it's here where if you have a really lame or blind, stumbling knowledge of God's word that you're actually crippled because you're not aware of the ways he has spoken indirectly to the situation. So you don't want to be, the more ignorant you are of God's word, the the more difficult biblical decision making is going to be. Let me give an example from my friend. A young man is debating whether to spend the night at his girlfriend's apartment. And guys, this, this is what you, what you deal with in ministry. You're gonna, if you haven't come across this in your small group or if you haven't come across this in the church somewhere, you will. And he knows. First Thessalonians 4.3 says, this is the will of God for your sanctification. That is that you abstain from sexual immorality. Therefore, his plan is to sleep on the couch at her apartment. Um, he doesn't want to violate God's direct, clear command. But is don't fornicate the only thing that God's word has said? How about Romans 13, 14? Make no provision for the flesh in regards to its lusts. How about Proverbs 5, 8? Do not go near the door of her house. See, there's indirect teaching from God's word that makes it very clear. The Bible is bluntly realistic about sexual sin. So don't give yourself um, to unnecessary opportunity to fall into it. Indirectly, God has said a lot about that young man's situation whether or not he should spend the night at his girlfriend's apartment. Even though there's no specific command, thou shalt not sleep on her couch. Another example, God's word doesn't directly tell you which car you should buy. But does that mean that God's word doesn't have any input on that decision? Indirectly, it does in many ways. The Bible doesn't say buy this car, but don't buy that car. But it does say a lot of serious things about debt about the one who borrows becomes the lender's slave. So if you want to take out a Ferrari-sized loan on a Ford-sized income, you probably have your decision already made for you indirectly from Scripture. So that might reshape your decision to buy a hot sports car or something really practical within your budget. Um, Things like that. What are you looking for specifically concerning God's word speaking indirectly into your situation? You're looking for this. You're looking for the pressure point. You're looking for what's going to get at the motive of what's going on in me. I just really want, I really like the idea of staying in her apartment, but not touching the fire. Ah, Romans got to the bottom of that. Make no provision for the flesh in regards to lust. Now we got to the issue. Now we got to the issue. You're wanting to make provision for sin in your flesh. Let's talk about that. Now you've gotten to the heart of the issue. Okay? Lastly, humbly follow your desire and decide. So you obey God's revealed will. You're just trying to be an obedient believer. You're praying for wisdom in a situation. You've gathered info and counsel. You've scoured the Bible to see if the Bible speaks directly to it. You've scoured the Bible to see if it speaks indirectly to it. If all that is left then at the end, everything trickles down through that whole matrix and that you know, filter and it plops out at the end of that and it, it, the Bible doesn't affirm it or deny it and all that is left is, what's my desire? By the way, how many of those kinds of decisions will you make in life? You, and at one level, you'll make a lot. Should I eat it? Wendy's or McDonald's? Real, they're, they're either really, really, really minor and it's really not an issue. Think carefully. Go with your desire at that point. But in terms of big decisions in life, how many big decisions make it all the way through? 
you're being obedient, you're praying for wisdom, you gather info and counsel, does the Bible speak directly to it or indirectly to it, and something falls out, and it doesn't make the decision for you. You're not going to have a ton of those in life. Can I give an example of one that I had? Went to seminary. I'm in my last semester of seminary. I send out 12 applications for a youth pastor position. And out of all of the 12, two of them rose to the top, one in Bakersfield and one in Phoenix. And they each moved along the way at the same time. I flew out there and I went up to Bakersfield. They came and visited me. They came and visited me. They made an offer. They made an offer. It was the same amount. It was the same amount. Um, I like these elders. think I could work with them. I could work with these elders, I think. And Kim and I looked at that and we said, nothing really stands out one way or the other. And so you know what we said? Where do you want to live? We're like, I want to live in Phoenix. I want to live in Bakersfield. <laughs> and we made our decision based on our desire. And you may say, that was very unspiritual. Really? When you go through that point, tell me how unspiritual it is that you're being careful to obey God's word. Is it unspiritual to pray for wisdom? Is it unspiritual to go gather info and counsel and involve other people in the decision-making process? How unspiritual is it that you look to see where scripture directly speaks and indirectly speaks to your situation? And if everything falls out at the end and all that is left is your own internal desire, you know what? You're in the best condition you ever could be to make a decision based on your desire. Make the decision. Make the decision. That is not an unspiritual ending place to be. It is a very spiritual place. You have purified your inward desire over and over and over and over again through counsel, through prayers, through the word of God, through assessing pluses and minuses. What do you do, though, if you made the decision at that point and it was a bad decision? What do you do? Welcome to the human race. You made a bad decision. Was there something that you didn't see in it while you were in the midst of it, but now you do see? Ah, got to learn from that, don't we? So that we don't do that again. So that we don't get duped by a motive that we didn't unsift with God's word or something like that. And just trust. I mean, you're going to make bad decisions sometimes. Even after doing everything. This is not a, a formula that says, if you do this every single time, you will always make the right decision. There'll be no sin in your decision. No, there will always be sin in your decision. But we need to think carefully, think bi biblically. You can take comfort that the mind of man plans his way, but the Lord directs your steps. And you don't need to know what his full, unrevealed will is before you make your decision. Let's pray. Father in heaven, I lift up these men to you that they would be good biblical decision makers, spiritual ones. And that, Lord, they would not allow somebody to redefine what spiritual is as if walking by the Spirit means that you're discerning the signs and the open doors and the peace. That's not what it means to walk by the Spirit in your word. Help them to see that we need to redefine what a spiritual man is. It's one who's obedient to your word. It's one who's praying for wisdom. It's one who's seeking counsel out. It's one who's looking at what your word directly and indirectly says. Give them confidence that if they are such men, they are spiritual men. And if a decision is left at the final, at the end of all of that, to just follow their own desire, Lord, give them peace to do that and joy. So, God, we commit ourselves to you. We need your help. This affects our own hearts. It affects our families. Our wives and our kids are affected by how we make decisions. Lord, give us wisdom that we might be good decision makers for the sake of others around us. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.